Good afternoon, everybody. How you doing? This is Christian Wagner, and I'm the Militant Thomist. So today we're going to be going over a bit of a difficult question, and that is whether it was necessary for the salvation of man, so assuming the fall, that the Word of God become incarnate. I got a question about this a few streams ago, and I didn't have the time to answer it. So I'm coming back here to do a show of its own to help you guys think through this question from St. Thomas. Now, I'm going to share my screen. Before that, uh, remember to become a member of the Discord. That's the best way that you can um, stay in touch. And then also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and the like. And then if you really like what I'm doing and would like to help me make this my job, um, I'm getting there. Um, then patreon.com slash militantthomist. But let's get right into it. Okay. This is going to be in Tertia Pars of the Summa, uh, question one, article two, whether it was necessary for the restoration of the human race that the word of God should become incarnate. Okay, so I'm going to read you guys the respondeo and explain through it, and then I'm going to get to some of the objections, because this is a good question to help you think through the logic of the incarnation, and then also, it's also a curiosity of its own. I'm going to keep the comments open, just in case you guys have any questions. I'll deal with a few questions at the end, but this is have to be a little quick, because at 7 o'clock, there's the first iteration of Militant Thomist After Dark, where anybody can come on and talk about whatever they want with me, as long as it's theological. Okay, let's go right into it. So, on the contrary, what frees the human race from perdition is necessary for the salvation of man. But the mystery of the incarnation is such, according to John 3.16, God so loved the world as to give his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him may not perish, but may have life everlasting. Therefore, it was necessary for man's salvation that God should become incarnate. Okay, I answer that. A thing is said to be necessary for a certain end in two ways. First, when the end cannot be without it, as food is necessary for the preservation of human life. Secondary, second, when the end is attained better and more convincingly, as a horse is necessary for a journey. Okay, so this is a bit ironic if you don't get the background of, uh, of the Dominicans, because St. Thomas was of the order of St. Dominic. So, um... Actually, the Dominicans were known for the fact that they did not use horses. They walked everywhere. So the second example is a bit tongue-in-cheek um, because it's necessary, uh, not in the sense of absolute necessity, but only of relative necessity, that it's necessary for its, uh, its fitting and useful working out, and it's most fitting and uh, most helpful. That's so the way he's getting out for the second way of necessity. And the first way is called absolute necessity. So in the first way, it was not necessary that God should become incarnate for the restoration of the human race. For God, with his omnipotent power, could have restored human nature in many other ways. Okay? So it's not absolutely necessary that Christ be incarnate. It's only relatively necessary that Christ be incarnate. But in the second way, it was necessary that God should become incarnate for the restoration of the human nature. Hence, Augustine says, we shall also show that other ways were not wanting to God, to whose power all things are equally subject, but that there was not a more fitting way of healing of misery. Sorry, I'm scooting up. Okay, so 
in the second way. So it's only relatively necessary for it being most fitting that God should become incarnate. But let's get into a bit more the logic behind it. He's going to go on. Now, this may be viewed with respect to our furtherance in good. First, with regards to faith, which is made more certain by believing God himself who speaks. So it's most fitting, like our example of a horse for a journey, that for our faith, because it's an elevation of our faith in that we're having God speaking to us, not necessarily uh, God speaking through a certain man, as with the prophets. Hence, Augustine says, in order that man might journey more trustfully towards the truth, the truth itself, the Son of God, having assumed human nature, established and founded faith. Second, with regard to hope, which is thereby greatly strengthened. Hence, Augustine says, nothing was more was so necessary for raising our hope as to show us how deeply God loved us. And what could afford us to a stronger proof than that the Son of God should become a partner with us of human nature? So we have in the fact that God humiliated himself, and I don't mean that in a negative sense, that God was humbled so much as to become a man, that we have a greater hope because we know the love that God has for us, that he would take upon himself a human nature. And then third, with regard to charity, which is greatly enkindled by this. Hence, Augustine says, what greater cause is there of the Lord's coming than to show God's love for us? And afterwards adds, if we have been slow to love, at least let us hasten to love in return. Because in if you think about it um, in, in our... Um, in our economy that, uh, and I don't mean economy in a uh, economic sense, but only in the sense of relations between humans, that when somebody loves us, it greater enkindles our charity to love them. Therefore, in this great act of love, it enkindles our charity back towards God insofar as he became, in that he became man. So it strengthens what are called the theological virtues right here. The three are faith, hope, and love. But further, fourth, with regard to well-doing, in which he set us an example. Hence, Augustine says in a sermon, man who might be seen was not to be followed, but God was to be followed, who could not be seen. And therefore, God was made man, that he might be seen by man, and whom man might follow might be shown to be man. So with regards to the authority wherein the divine law is given to us, whereas it's God speaking himself, therefore, we have a greater reason to follow after the evangelical law. And then fifth, with regards to the full participation of the divinity, which is the true bliss of man and the end of human life. And this is bestowed upon us by Christ's humanity. For Augustine says in a sermon, God was made man that might, man might become God. So this very important. So our supernatural end is the beatific vision, wherein we become fully united in our intellects to the essence of God. And this was necessary. The, the incarnation was necessary that God might take upon human nature in the full participation of the full hypostatic participation of humanity with divinity that in our partakers of Christ's humanity, we so also might become partakers in his divinity and reach our supernatural end. Okay. And then further down here. So also was this useful for our withdrawal from evil? First, because man is taught by it not to prefer the devil to himself, 
nor to honor him who is the author of sin. Hence, Augustine says, since human nature is so united to God as to become one person, let not these proud spirits dare to prefer themselves to man because they have no bodies. Second, because we are thereby taught how great is man's dignity, lest we should sully it with sin. Hence, Augustine says, God has proved to us how high a place human nature holds amongst creatures, and as much as he appeared to man as a true man. And Pope Leo says in a sermon on the nativity, learn, O Christian, thy worth, and being made a partaker of the divine nature, refuse to return by evil deeds to your former worthlessness. So look at this right here. Um, you often get rad trads who get upset when we talk about the dignity of man. But here St. Thomas Aquinas saying that the dignity of man is raised in the fact that that human nature has become united to the divinity. Therefore, we ought not to sully it with sin because human nature has been hypostatically united to God. Okay, third, because in order to do away with man's presumption, the grace of God is commended in Jesus Christ, though no merits of ours went before, as Augustine says. Fourth, because man's pride, which is the greatest stumbling block to our clinging to God, could be convinced and cured by humility so great, as Augustine says in the same place. So as it says, as Paul says, that those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And we see that the greatest exaltation, which is the divinity, has been joined to humanity. Therefore, no matter how great you are, in, in the eyes of the world at least, or in yourself, that you ought to humble yourselves just as the second person of the Trinity humbled himself by being joined to humanity. Fifth, in order to free man from the th thraldom of sin, which as Augustine says, ought to be done in such a way that the devil should be overcome by the justice of the man Jesus Christ. And this was done by Christ satisfying for us. Now a mere man cannot satisfy for the whole human race, and God was not bound to satisfy. Hence it behooved Jesus Christ to be both God and man. Hence Pope Leo says in the same sermon, weakness is assumed by strength, lowliness by majesty, mortality by eternity, in order that one and the same mediator of God and men might die in one and rise in the other. For this was our fitting remedy. Unless he was God, he would not have brought a remedy. Unless he was man, he would not have set an example. So we see here on the fifth one that our sin might be taken away. And there are many, very many other advantages which are cured above man's apprehension. So we see here that contrary to popular belief, scholastic theology, at least in, in St. Thomas, is much, much more devotional um, than, than it, people like to make it out to be. So we, here we have really 10 reasons why it was uh, necessary and fitting that God become man. So let's get to some of the objections real quick. And then if you guys have any questions, I'll take them in the chat after. So objection one, it would seem that it was not necessary for the reparation of the human nature that the word of God should become man. For since the word of God is perfect God, as has been said, no power was added to him by the assumption of flesh. Therefore, if the incarnate word of God restored human nature, he could have done it. He could have restored it without assuming flesh. So basically, this objection is, well, God's omnipotent, and he doesn't gain any power from taking upon himself a human nature. Therefore, it was not necessary. Let's go down to response to objection one. This reason has to do with the first kind of necessity without which we cannot attain to an end. 
So again, this is actually a good argument against anybody who argues it's an absolute necessity because no power was gained by the assumption of a human nature. But this only has, but we're only arguing for a relative necessity, not an absolute necessity. Objection two. Further, for the restoration of human nature, which has fallen through sin, nothing more is required than that man should satisfy for sin. No man can satisfy, as it would seem, for sin, for God cannot require from man more than man can do. And since he is more inclined to be merciful than to punish, as he lays the act of sin to man's charge, so he ought to credit him with contrary act. Therefore, it was not necessary for the restoration of human nature that the word of God should become incarnate. So this argument is basically God enjoins us to repent uh, for our sins and to satisfy for our sins through repentance. Therefore, we're a, we should be able to achieve this end. Therefore, the word of God ought not to become incarnate, well, need not become incarnate. Let's see what he says. Satisfaction may be said to be sufficient in two ways. First, perfectly, in so much it is, as it is condign, being adequate to make good the fault committed. And in this way, the satisfaction of a mere human cannot be sufficient for sin, both because the whole of human nature has been corrupted by sin, whereas the goodness of any person or persons cannot make up adequately for the harm done to the whole of the nature, and also because a sin committed against God has a kind of infinity from the infinity of the divine majesty. Because the greater the person we offend, the more grievous the offense. Hence, for condign satisfaction, it was necessary that the one that the act of the one satisfying should have been an infinite efficacy, both God and man. So when it comes to our satisfaction of sin, for the removal of the sin, we being corrupted by sin could not could not um, achieve this. It was necessary because in our sin against an infinite being that so the satisfaction should be infinite. And this can only be achieved by God himself. <coughs> Sorry. Second, man's satisfaction may be termed sufficient imperfectly, i.e. in an exception of him who is continent with it, even though it is not condign. And in this way, the satisfaction of a mere man is sufficient. And for as much as every imperfect presupposes some perfect thing by which it is sustained, hence it is that satisfaction of every mere man has its efficacy from the satisfaction of Christ. So again, this gets us into a little bit of our theology of penance. When it comes to our satisfaction of sin through repentance, it is not of itself sufficient. But insofar as it participates in the satisfaction of Christ, which is sufficient, then by mercy, so it, it becomes sufficient for salvation, but not in itself. It's imperfectly. Okay, now let's go to objection three. Further, to revere God pertains especially to man's salvation. Hence it is written, if then, if I be a father, where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? But men revere God the more by considering him as elevated above all and far above beyond man's senses. Hence it is written, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens and farther on, who is as the Lord our God, which pertains to reverence. Therefore, it would seem unfitting to man's salvation that God should be made like unto us by assuming flesh. This is going to be kind of an Islamic objection that you're going to get, is that... Um, you do not have a higher view of God by him becoming man. Actually, you would have a lower view of, of him in becoming man. 
So let's see what St. Thomas says. By taking flesh, God did not lessen his majesty, and in consequence did not lessen the reason for reverencing him, which is increased by the increase of knowledge of him. But on the contrary, insomuch as he wished to draw nigh to us by taking flesh, he greatly drew us to know him. So actually, this is the opposite. Since the divinity is not mixed with the humanity, but rather is revealed in the humanity. So we may know even greater our reverence for him. We may know the the greatness of God even more insofar as we have this living icon of the divinity. And in seeing the divinity, so we, may we know him more. And so may also we reverence him more. So it's actually the exact opposite. It doesn't lower the divinity. It reveals the greatness of the divinity even more in the incarnation, which is why the incarnation is so important in our theology. Okay, that's all I have right now. I'm not seeing anything in the chat, but I'll give you guys like 10 seconds. Okay, that's all I have for you today. Thank you. Join me later at 7 o'clock in about an hour for Militant Thomist After Dark. Remember, become a patron if you're really enjoying what I'm doing. And that's all I have for you. And God bless. Glory.